you would please be finding your Bible, Jude, verses 3 and 4. you have it let's have a word of prayer father today i pray that through your word through this time of study and expounding on your word that we would understand the great truth that there are times when we as your children are to stand and fight there are times when we should be willing father to fight for what is right i pray you'll show us the necessity of that today, in Christ's name, amen. Folks, I want to ask you a question. What do Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Princeton, William and Mary, Dartmouth, and Brown, what do all they, those colleges have in common? All but one, I think. William and Mary, yeah, but that's not it. Uh, <laughs> I knew somebody was going to say Ivy League. I know he's, he's close, Jeff. Cancel. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But you know what they got in common? Every one of those universities were founded by Bible-believing conservative Christians for the purpose of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ and training gospel ministers. Of the 100 uh, first institutions of higher learning that were founded here in America, 88 of those institutions were founded for the purpose of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ and training preachers of God's Word. Now, folks, I know people say, well, what happened? Well, we'll get into that in just a minute. Do you realize on the cornerstone of Harvard University, which incidentally was named after Reverend John Harvard, on the corner of Harvard University, there is a bronze plaque with these words. It says, After God had carried us safe to New England, and we had builded our houses, provided necessities, uh, I can't say it, necessities for our livelihood, reared convenient places for God's worship, and settled the civil government. One of the next things we longed for and looked after was to advance learning and perpetuate to posterity, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. Now I want you to think about this, folks. The very first institution of higher learning established in America was established to train ministers of the gospel to fight the good fight of faith and defend the Word of God. As a matter of fact, Harvard, in their 1643, the year 1643, their handbook for rules and precepts laid down three rules that every student was expected to follow. Let me read those to you. It says, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of their life and studies, which is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Number two, our goal is seeking the Lord, for the Lord giveth wisdom. Everyone shall seriously, by prayer in secret, 
seek wisdom of him. And then the third thing they laid down that every student was to follow. Everyone shall so exercise himself in reading the scriptures twice a day that they may be ready to give an account of their proficiency therein, both in theoretical observation of language and logic and in practical and spiritual truths. Princeton University folks, when it was first founded, made it mandatory that the faculties be convinced of, and I quote, the necessity of the religious experience of salvation. When Brown University was founded, its charter stipulated that of its 29 trustees, 22 of those 29 trustees must be members of a Baptist church. And that forevermore the president of Brown University must be an active member of a Baptist church. Now folks, today, those same institutions are nothing more than bastions of secular humanism where Christianity is not even tolerated and it's openly mocked and ridiculed. Now people say, well preacher, what happened? Well the answer is both tragic but oh so simple. And the fact is that God's people simply did not take serious Jude's warning. I want you to look at verses 3 and 4 of Jude. He says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now along with what Jude said, I want you to listen to a statement that was made about 500 years ago by Martin Luther. He said, Christendom must have people who can beat down their adversaries and opponents and tear off the devil's equipment and armor, that he may be brought into full disgrace. But for this work, powerful warriors are needed, who are thoroughly familiar with the Scriptures and can contradict all thoughts, interpretations, and take the sword from false teachers, that is, those very verses which false teachers use, and turn them round upon them so that they fall back defeated. But as not all Christians can be so capable in defending the word and articles of their faith, they must have teachers and preachers who study the Scriptures and have daily fellowship with them so that they can fight for all the others. Yet each Christian should be so armed that he himself is sure of his belief and of his doctrine and is so equipped with the saints from the Word of God they can stand up against the devil and defend himself when men seek to lead him astray. Folks, let me put it, what Martin Luther was really trying to say is that it's right to fight when you stand and fight for what's right. That's what he's telling us. Jude has sounded the alarm. You could title the book of Jude, Battle Stations. And after studying this several times over the years, folks, I'm convinced the book of Jude is God's reveille calling out a call to arms for all Christians. And we need to take it seriously. The book of Jude, when it comes to the faith, Folks, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude is not a pacifist. Jude says it's right to fight when you're right. Fight for what's right. In other words, he said, if you're a Christian, you're a believer, then take a stand. Amen? I want you to see this morning that Jude, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gives us three exhortations as believers were to follow and stand in the gap for the truth of God. First of all, he tells us we're to be diligent extenders of the faith. 
Now, I want you to understand, Jude never intended to write the book that we're studying this morning. He never intended to write a book defending the faith. He wanted to write a book declaring the faith. Because notice what he says. Look at verse 3. He says, and I'll modernize it a little bit. He said, Beloved, while I was very diligent, diligent to write to you concerning the common or our common salvation. Jude was interested in writing about salvation. He was fired up about salvation. The name Jude comes from the name Judah. And the name Judah actually means praise. Well, Jude was full of praise for the Lord who had saved him and saved his fellow believers. <clears throat> and I want you to notice, folks, in that one line, that one first line in verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation... In that line, there are two things that we need to learn about salvation. And number one is salvation should excite us. Now you know Jude was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, but you'd never know it from reading this book because he makes no mention of it. What excited Jude was not that Jesus was his half-brother, but that Jesus was his full Savior. Jude, he wanted, he wanted to write a gospel tract. In fact, he said, I was diligent to write to you concerning the common salvation. Notice that word diligent. In the Greek, uh, the Greek word used there is where we get our English word for speed. So in other words, Jude could hardly wait to talk about salvation. I mean, that was the passion of his heart, the fire in his bones, the obsession of his life. Think about all the things that Jude could have written about. He could have wrote some bestsellers. I mean, again, his half-brother was Jesus. Jude could have wrote uh, maybe a book entitled uh, My Brother the Savior. I mean, if he'd been a modern preacher, he'd have wrote something like that because he made a lot of money off of it. My Brother the Savior. He could have wrote a book you know, entitled I Knew Jesus When He Was a Carpenter. He could have wrote a novel entitled From the Cradle to the Cross. But all Jude wanted to write about was salvation. That was the bottom line for him. And you know what, Christian? That ought to be the bottom line for us. Salvation is what we ought to write about, what we ought to sing about, preach about, talk about, pray about, and shout about. Because I hope you agree with me, Christian, there ain't nothing like being saved. Now I've said this, I'm going to stand by it. I believe there's one thing that ought to happen to every sinner, and one thing ought to happen to every saint. Every sinner needs to get over being lost, by being saved. And every saint should never get over being saved from being lost. Now folks, if those two things are true, then I'm going to add something else. Every saint should be a soul winner telling other lost people how they can get over being lost by being saved. Salvation should excite us. But also, Jude lets us in to the fact that salvation should unite us. Notice he said he wanted to write about not just his salvation, but the common, and that word the, it could also be translated our in, in, the, in the original language. So he wanted to write about our common salvation. Understand, Christian, salvation, that's, that's what brings us together. Binds us together, builds us together, blesses us together. And let me tell you something. Any church, any denomination that is united around a common salvation and a desire to carry that salvation around the world, they will be an immovable object and an irresistible force. We're to be diligent extenders of the faith. But Jude also tells us we need to be devoted contenders of the faith. Rather than simply declaring the faith, Jude was compelled 
to defend it. And if you'll listen to what he's saying, you'll see why he was compelled to defend the faith. The reason, number one, first of all, because it's a definite faith. He said we are to earnestly or contend earnestly for the faith. Now, I've told you before, folks, there's a difference between faith and the faith. One refers to the operation of faith. The other refers to the object of faith. One refers to the act of believing. The other refers to what we believe. Now, there are many churches, there are many denominations, but there's only one faith. And the faith is the truth of the Word of God. In other words, let me, let me make it clear, folks. There is a body of belief, okay? There is a deposit of doctrine that is non-negotiable. Back in 1910 through about 1915, uh, years ago, there was a group of theologians, pastors, preachers, and lay people who got together, folks, and they wrote a series of volumes that they titled, titled Fundamentals. And what they did, they set out five non-negotiables of the Christian faith. Do you know what those non-negotiables are? Number one, the first non-negotiable is the infallibility of the Word of God. Number two is the deity of Jesus Christ. Number three is the virgin birth, sinless life, and miracles of Jesus Christ. Number four is His substitutionary atoning death on the cross. And number five is His physical resurrection from the dead and His eventual physical return. Now folks, those five things are non-negotiable. And I say this without apology, without a reservation. Those five non-negotiables are the very core of my theology. But I want you to notice, it all starts with the infallibility of Scripture. Spurgeon, the great preacher, was right. He said, and I quote, The turning point of the battle between those who hold the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, and their opponents, lies in the true and real inspiration of Holy Scripture. Spurgeon was exactly right, folks. The river of all truth flows from this scriptural fountain. And it must never be contaminated with the mere opinions of men, regardless how scholarly those men may appear. It's a definite faith, but it's also a dogmatic faith. Now I realize that's a word that, whoo, that makes the liberals run for cover. It's a dogmatic faith. The, in other words, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You say the King James says once delivered. That word once there actually in the original language, it means once for all. It means uh, once given and never to be given again. Once for all delivered unto the saints. In other words, the faith, it's complete. Let me explain this to you, folks. The Bible is the only word we have from God and the only word we need from God. With the Old Testament and the New Testament, we don't need any other testament, folks. We don't need a new revelation of what people call truth. We just need an application of the old truth that we already have. We don't need anything new. We don't... We don't need uh, Joseph Smith and golden tablets. We don't need uh, Mary Baker Eddy or, or Ellen White. And let me tell you something. We don't need any visions and dreams from these modern so-called apostles and prophets. What we need is what we have. This faith is definite. It's dogmatic. But folks, it's also a delivered faith. You say, why is that important? Well, this faith is once for all delivered to the saints. Look at that word delivered. It means to be entrusted or deposited with. 
Actually, it means to be formally conveyed and authoritatively taught. So what I want you to understand is this. This faith, it was not discovered by the saints. It was delivered to the saints. Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 4. It says, we've been approved by God to be entrusted. There's that word again. There with the gospel. We have been given this truth. Again, we didn't find it. We didn't discover it somewhere. It was delivered. It was put into our care. And let me say this. Because it was delivered unto the saints and put into our care and entrusted to us, friend, we're going to be held accountable as to how we protect it, how we preserve it, how we preach it, and how we live it. You can rest assured on that. It's a definite faith. Dogmatic faith. A delivered faith. But it's also to be a defended faith. Jude exhorts us to earnestly contend for the faith. The Greek word contend, that gives us our English word agonize. And it paints a picture of a wrestler agonizing. I mean, uh, locked up in battle trying to win the victory. So, what Jude is saying is this, Christian. And I'm talking to believers this morning. Alright, primarily I'm talking to Christians and I want you to listen to me. What Jude is saying is when others corrupt the faith, we're to contend for the faith. When others defy the faith and deny the faith, we are to defend the faith. It's right to fight when you fight for right. John Calvin, the old theologian, he said this, even an old dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw God's truth being attacked and would remain silent without giving any sound. Now let me say something right here at this point. I do realize there are those who are going to say, well, preacher, we don't need to fight. We just need to get along with everybody. We ought to just love one another. Accept all the differences and celebrate all the diversity. We don't need to rock the boat, preacher. I want you to hear me and hear me well. It's a whole lot better that truth and belief should rock the boat than unbelief and false doctrine should wreck the boat. You say you're wound up, preacher. Yes, I am. I'm sick and tired of people professing Christ and then twisting and distorting God's Word and teaching other people to do the same thing. Friend, if you hear nothing else I said today, hear this. There is a God and His Son is Jesus Christ. He died for your sins. You better receive Him as your Savior or you're going to spend eternity in hell. And understand this, this one God you will answer to one day. We are stewards of this great truth. And we are to defend it. And I want to say this. We're not to be timid or be intimidated by the secular media. By the liberals' agenda. Or even by those who claim to be on our side. But they're not. You know, years ago, folks. Years ago, the, the, the primary spokesperson for the atheist in America. Do you remember what her name was? Madeline Murray O'Hare. Most older folks remember her. Let me share something with which she actually spoke the truth. This time, anyway. Let me share something with you that she said. She was asked by a reporter. She said, tell me, uh, why are so many people afraid of you? Listen to what she said. She said, I'll tell you why some Christians are afraid of me. Because they're not sure that what they say they believe is true. If they were sure, I would not be a threat to them at all. 
Listen to me, Christian. We need not be ashamed of what we believe, nor be afraid to stand and fight for it when it's necessary. We're to be devoted contenders for the faith. Diligent extenders of the faith. And God help us, we need to be determined defenders of the faith. Remember Jude's theme I told you last week? Keeping up your guard. Now why are we to keep up our guard? Because of what he says. Look at verse 4. He says, certain men have crept in unawares or unnoticed, he says. Now let me give you the picture in the Greek language that he's painting here because it'll open your eyes. What he's doing, he's painting a picture of a criminal who is exiled from a country who slips back across the border under the cover of darkness. Or he's painting a picture of a, <clears throat> maybe you've seen this, been down in Florida or in South America or, or somewhere, and you've seen alligators or crocodiles and big lizards, crocodiles, whatever they are. But he's painting a picture of how they can slip into the water those huge ravenous animals slip into the water and not even make a ripple. That's the picture that he's given. Now remember, he's talking about apostates here. Jude, he has warned us that spiritual crocodiles, they line the banks of the river of Christianity, wanting to slip in and devour colleges, seminaries, churches, denominations. Or to bring it into modern terms, they're wanting to be stealth liberals and fly in under the radar so they can take over and steal what has been built by Bible-believing conservative Christians. How many of you remember the name Joseph Zahn? I've talked about him before. Great, great Romanian pastor and evangelist. One of the greatest uh, modern day theologians, folks of his time. Well, Joseph Zahn, he grew up in Romania. So he grew up under a, a communist uh, regime. Well, as a young man, he became a Christian. He became a Christian even though he was indoctrinated with the communistic Marxism uh, indoctrination that all the kids got in school, he still became a Christian. And he learned English for the primary purpose of furthering his theological understanding of God's Word. Now I want to read you something. His first English the uh, theology book that he read, in his own words, he said, it cast me into despair because it undermined the reliability of the Bible. Dr. Zahn said, uh, he said, I didn't know at the time there was a difference between liberal and conservative scholarship. And the result was that I temporarily abandoned the faith. And then he goes on and says, my faith was not killed by Marxism and communism. My faith was killed by liberal theologians. Liberal theologians who undermine the faith of their nation in the Bible, they work for a communist takeover of their land. I'd say he's right. You know what? I agree with the late, great Baptist preacher R.G. Lee. He said, I have more respect for a burglar, for a thief, who takes a crowbar and jimmies a window in my house and slides in under darkness and steals my wife's wedding ring than I have for a college professor with a Ph.D. who, wielding the cutlass of criticism against the Bible, breaks into the house of faith of Christian young people to destroy their faith. I agree with him. I want to tell you, and I'll make it real clear. Folks, a faith-stealing liberal is lower than a rattlesnake. Say, so why do you say that? Because most of the time, at least a rattlesnake will give you a warning before it strikes you. Liberal won't. Keep in mind, Jude, again, he's not talking about false teachers. 
All right, he, he's talking about apostates. You say, what's the difference? Let me remind you again of the difference. An apostate claims to be a Christian. A false teacher does not. Okay? Uh, the most dangerous enemy, folks, is the one who looks most like a friend. The most dangerous counterfeit is the one who looks most like the real thing. An apostate is someone who will use our vocabulary, but not our definitions, not our dictionary. Jude tells us exactly how to spot an apostate right here in this passage. Let me share it with you. First of all, an apostate, they will dismiss God's standard. Notice he says in verse 4, These men who crept in... They are ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness. That means lewdness is what he's talking about. So what he's saying is, these people, these apostates that he's talking about, they see grace as a license to sin, not as a liberty not to sin. So what I mean by that is, they put the grace of God in a showcase and the judgment of God in a suitcase. Let me give you an example. They'll say things like this. Homosexuality, it's okay with God. As long as two people love each other, they're committed to one another in a monogamous relationship, they'll say God will approve of that because after all, God's a God of grace. You ever heard anybody speak like that? I assure you, you're listening to an apostate when you hear somebody say that. Yeah, God is a God of grace, but He's also a God of judgment. And He's also a sovereign, righteous, holy God. And He means what He says. Don't ever forget, I don't care what degrees a person may have. I don't care what title is in front of their name. I don't care how sweet they may sound. When you hear somebody talking like that, whether it's a preacher behind a pulpit or a professor behind a podium or somebody in Walmart behind a shopping basket, when you hear somebody talk that way, you're listening to an apostate. Because an apostate, they will dismiss God's standards. But number two, they'll defy God's sovereignty. Look at verse 4 again. It says, they deny the only Lord God. Now I want you to look at that word Lord there. It's pretty interesting. It's not the normal word for Lord. The word that's used there uh, in the Greek is where we get our English word despot from. Now that word despot's not, it's not always a negative word. All right. Actually, what that word means right here, the way it's used, it means someone who has absolute power and authority and demands absolute control. In other words, folks, an apostate, they're going to defy the authority of God. They defy the right that God has to call the shots in our life and everybody's life. They defy God's sovereignty. So, let me put it clear to you. What does apostate do? They drink the world's booze. They speak the world's language. They, they defend the world's morals. And they say, God doesn't care or God doesn't matter. I assure you, God does care. And I assure you, if this is your attitude, friend, one day you're going to find out that God does matter. An apostate, they dismiss God's standards. They defy God's sovereignty. But lastly, they deny God's Son. Look at the last of the sentence, last sentence in verse 4. They deny our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, right here is the acid test of the apostate. Now there are some who say that for, for the Christian it's never right to fight. But again, folks, Jude, he says it's right to fight when you fight for right, and it's wrong not to fight when right is at stake. Let me make it real clear. When a professor or a preacher or a teacher says Jesus Christ was not born of a virgin... Those are fighting words, and I'm going to fight. When a professor or a preacher says Jesus is not God, 
Those are fighting words. When a professor or a preacher says Jesus did not have to die on the cross for our salvation, again, those are fighting words. When a professor or a preacher says Jesus was not raised from the dead, get ready for a battle to start. When a professor or a preacher says Jesus is not coming again, those are fighting words. Friend, when a professor or a preacher says Jesus is not God's only way to heaven, I assure you I'm going to fight when those words are spoken. God help us. Give us the spiritual fortitude to stand and fight for what's right. To have bold scriptural conviction and an unwavering faith in Jesus Christ. Listen real clear, Christian. The next time, the next time somebody knocks at your door peddling their religious perversity, or the next time you sit under a preacher behind a pulpit or a college professor behind a podium, don't you ever forget what I'm about to tell you. If that person is wrong about Jesus Christ, it don't matter what else they're right about. They're wrong all the way around. I have made up my mind, no matter what else happens, whatever else, everybody else, the direction they're heading, whoever else, everybody else is listening to, I made up my mind, I'm going to stay with Jesus and the Word of God. I'm not budging. Spurgeon. Again, that great preacher said one time, the greatest compliment he ever got was not spoken by a friend, but by his bitterest enemy. Listen to what this man said about Spurgeon. Speaking about Spurgeon, he said, Here's a man who has not moved an inch forward in all his ministry. At the close of the 19th century, he's still teaching the theology of the first century and is still proclaiming doctrine current in Nazareth and Jerusalem in the first century. Well, you know what I say, folks? I, for one, like that kind of non-movement. That's where it needs to stay. Now, many of you know that one of my joys... And the ministry is working with young preachers. And one of the reasons, folks, that, that I am passionate about that is because there are a lot of young preachers who without the right guidance, they're going to get off the road of orthodoxy. They're going to get off the road of biblical theology and gospel preaching. And they're going to decide that they'd rather have the applause and the accolades of men rather than the approval of God. I believe that's why God's placed that upon my heart. And you know what? I was thinking about that last night. And you know, now that I have, uh, now that I've gotten a few years behind me in the ministry and preaching God's Word, I remember when I first started, I was told, you'll never make it. You'll never become a preacher. You'll never, you'll never be able to do it. Well, I may not be very good, but near 30 years is a pretty good start on it, I think. And as last night, as I was studying and thinking back over my life and the ministry, I was reminded of a poem. It was written by the great Christian missionary C.T. Studd. And the title, of the, poem, uh, the title of the poem is, I'm Not Going Your Way. I want you to listen to it. <clears throat> You're just out of date, said young Pastor Bate to one of our faithful old preachers who had carried for years in travail and tears the gospel to poor sinful creatures. You still preach on hell and shock cultured ladies with your barbarous doctrine of blood. You're so far behind you'll never catch up. You're a flat tire stuck in the mud. For some little while, a wee bit of a smile enlightened the old preacher's face. Being made the butt of a ridiculous cut didn't ruffle his resolve and grace. 
Then he turned to young Bates, so suave and sedate, said, catch up, did my ears hear you say? Why, son, I couldn't succeed if I doubled your speed because, boy, I'm not going your way. <laughs> Folks, I'm going to tell you, at this age and this stage of my life and ministry, my resolve is stronger than it ever has been. And I'm going to tell you with undaunted determination, I... I'm, I'm I have decided more today than ever before in all my ministry, folks. As long as God allows me to live and to preach, I'm going to stay lashed, chained, and bound to the old rugged cross. And I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to continue to preach the old-time religion and the old-fashioned gospel. And I'm going to continue to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. You say, why, preacher? Because people all around us are lost and heading to hell because they bought in to the lie of the devil instead of the truth of God's Word. Because churches and denominations, folks, they're being destroyed because of compromise, apostasy, and liberalism. Because our once great Christian nation is now an apostate Nation on the verge of destruction and collapse. I'm telling you, it's time, Christian, that we heed Jude's warning. And we begin to earnestly contend for the faith. Because it's right to fight when you fight for what's right. Would you bow your heads, please?